invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, and as our Tabernacle Express kids are being dismissed, the book of Malachi, uh, if you're using your Red Pew Bible, that would be page number 908, 900, 908. I do invite you to follow along, and uh, there is the outline in the bulletin. Uh, kids can turn that in uh, at the welcome desk where the coffee is, and after I collect a number of them, I will give them a reward for their effort, and it does my heart good to see uh, participation by our younger uh, generation as we look into the Word. Malachi 3, 6 through 13, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be found uh, food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And, how, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Does anyone remember the front bench seat, the front bench seat in a pickup truck or, or like my grandfather's 1976 Caprice Classic. I remember the front bench seat sitting between my grandparents as we floated down those country roads. Uh, some others may remember the front bench seat for other more romantic reasons, actually. Uh, there was a time when you could look down the highway and you could see a young couple sitting there. He had his hand on the wheel and an arm around his girl, and they were going down. And this was before texting, so they were swerving. And uh, I tell you, it's uh, it's not like it how it's how it used to be. But um, I heard about a couple who had been married for 30 years, and uh, after 30 years, their driving had improved. They were no longer swerving as such. Uh, but their marriage was a little bit underwater. And sitting on her side, she sighs, and he said, what's wrong? And she said, don't you ever wish that we could just, you know, sit close like we did when we were young? And he said, well, I wasn't the one that moved. Miffed, she said, you know, I was a fool when I married you. To which she replied, Yes, to which he replied, yes, dear, but I was in love and didn't notice it. 
marriage and children change things uh, for every couple, but none of the things that we live with that change us affect God. He never changes. He is always the same. That's apparent in his declaration in verse 6. But for those of us who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, maybe we trusted when we were youngsters. We were very young. We grow up. We become acquainted with the cares of life. We become almost obsessed with our own need to take care of ourselves that we quickly forget that He hasn't changed and His promises endure forever. We have a different kind of struggle for those of us who have embraced Christ at a younger age, and we are continually needing to consider, have we changed? Have we moved? Have we slid over in the front seat? God hasn't changed. And so it's important for us to examine our hearts to see whether or not renewal and return to the Lord is needed. And in this text, we see emphasis upon the need to return to the Lord through covenant giving. Covenant giving. And I emphasize that word covenant giving because covenant relationships are designed to thrive not by taking, but of giving ourselves in the relationship. I have emphasized throughout this study of Malachi how we live in a consumer culture that tries to reinvent relationships that were designed to be giving of ourselves towards others and become takers in relationship. Secular humanism has created poisonous fruit from that which God has created to be sweet and enjoyable. Covenant relationships like marriage of church family, of community. Secular humanism has created poisonous fruit. You see, going with the grain, I'm going to pass that slide. You can slip Going with the grain of God's design has actually the promise of greater joy if we follow with the grain that God has designed rather than going against the grain. See, human flourishing is designed to occur when we fulfill the obligations that we have been called to do and to exercise in our human relationships. Just by way of review, each paragraph that we have been working through in the book of Malachi has been teaching us critical elements of what it takes to thrive in relationships, covenant relationships. Covenant keeping involves integrity, it involves fidelity, it involves trust, trusting that God is faithful, that God has integrity, that He keeps His Word. And fourthly, in this paragraph, we're looking at giving of ourselves in the relationship, not merely being takers in the relationship. And so, in this text, we see two ways that we are instructed to be giving of ourselves in relationship with God. And the first is, and there's an encouragement that we if we have strayed, if we have changed, if we've slid over in the front seat, so to speak, that we would return with our treasure as a sign of our desire for our Lord, or also our time 
These are ways that we demonstrate that we love God more than things. It shows that He is first and foremost in our lives. And so, the first element here that is instructed by Malachi is the, the need to return to the Lord with our, with our treasure. And you see this emphasis in verse 8 through 12. There is in verse 8 this curious little statement about robbing God. Think about that. How in the world do we rob someone who we can't see? How can you rob God? Is it impossible? There's an unthinkable distance, if you will, between us and Him. It's like I can't pick God's pocket. But to be robbed is a pretty, pretty interesting metaphor because have you ever been robbed? Have you ever had someone take something that was intimately yours? It's a very traumatic experience. In fact, I am aware of increased theft in our county. There are people going to car lots and taking catalytic converters off of cars in our community. There are people who are um, breaking into homes. I know of one family in particular who has had their home broken into in recent weeks. It's a pretty traumatic experience. Some people who have been burglarized don't feel comfortable sleeping in their own home anymore. It's a very traumatic picture, and we take great care to secure our homes so that we are, do not, we are not taken advantage of in this way. It's very personal. And so, I want for us to see the metaphor and understand that what God is saying here is that God takes the abdication of giving personally. He feels miffed. He feels violated by the fact that we don't give as we ought to give to Him. Now, the word rob in verse 8 is a very remarkable choice of words. It is a indulge me just a minute to give you a little Hebrew, okay? It's the word kava, which sounds a lot like yakav. Yakav, kava. There's a slight sound there with the name Jacob. Jacob, robber. And it's deliberate use of sound here to emphasize that this one that was called Israel or prince with God is now acting like the old nature. He's acting like Jacob, whom had been redeemed and his name had been changed, but now he's reverting to his old character. God hasn't changed, but somewhere this person, Israel, is changing and going back to his old character, and the story of Jacob is in this metaphor. Jacob's bad character, you know the story of how he was a deceiver, and he, but over his lifetime, he changed. God was redeeming him slowly over time, but there were periods in his life where he reverted back to his old character, and this is also true in our Christian experience. We are saved, and yet there are times where we don't live as we ought to as saved people. 
There are times where we become like Jacob and we, we revert to our bad character, and we need to return to the Lord just as much as a Jacob needs to return to the Lord. Jacob, as I said, he was given a special privileged name and association. So when Malachi wrote this little book, he, he started out by saying, hey, this is the oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel. But Israel is a mixed group of people. There are some people who were called Israel and rightly, rightly are called Israel because they're in faith living for him. They're keeping their covenant obligations. But there are some who are not true Israelites. And this is a strong message that's designed to awaken a mixed group of people where, where he's, he's communicating, now, which, which one is the Jacob? Which one is the true Israel? We, we really don't know. And it's easy to be anonymous in a crowd this week, Jeremy and I were noting how sometimes ineffective a group email communication can be because everyone who checks their email sees the message but can fake not seeing the message. It's easy to just assume that others are taking care of things. It's called ghosting. I mean, ever, it's just, we, we can do this. We can fall into this trap of anonymity where we think, well, this message is for someone else, you know. This message is for so-and-so. Well, it could be that this message is for you. Make no mistake about it. The issue of robbing God by man in this text moves very personally in verse 8. He says, you are robbing me. That's very personal. Now, the biblical tithe and offering are often a source of disagreement among Christians, and I understand that. Is this something that we are required to do today? Now, I personally believe that giving is part of our new covenant obligation in Christ, even as it was in the days of Abraham, before there was even a Mosaic law. In the book of Galatians, Paul argues that we are justified by faith apart from the law, and he rationalizes his argument based on the fact that at the time Abraham was living, there was no Mosaic law, and yet he obeyed and that obedience was a demonstration of his faith, and righteousness was credited to him. Abraham, you may not immediately remember this, but in Genesis 14 and 15, Abraham gave a tithe to the priest Melchizedek in gratitude for the victory that was given to him. Abraham's giving was evidence prior to the law, of a faith of a saving nature. The giving didn't earn him salvation. It was a demonstration of the faith that he had in God to supply all of his needs, even offspring. And so, I understand that there is sometimes um, disagreement among Christians. I'm just sharing you my personal viewpoint on the matter. 
Now, the law is a little bit different. The law incorporated much more giving requirements, and so I, I see that there is a sense in which some of that stuff has collapsed. In fact, uh, there was a mandatory giving of support for the temple priests, and there was celebratory years of giving. There was also a triannual giving for the poor that was collected, and this really brought the total of everyone's giving in Israel up to about, and I've quoted this a couple years ago, up to about 23 and a third percent of their income was giving to and through the temple system to be distributed amongst the community. I brought that up a couple of years ago, and people misunderstood that I was thinking that this was required of us today. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is that tithing was a, a standard practice, and it was common in neighboring nations, including Canaan, Phoenicia, Arabia, even in pagan nations and the Greek and Roman world, giving of a tenth was considered to be a responsible use of your finances in your society, and some of it was religious in orientation. And I think that, incidentally, you might be surprised to realize this, that Dave Ramsey in his radio broadcast, he speaks to non-Christians. Dave Ramsey will encourage non-believers to give back, even if they don't have a relationship with our Heavenly Father who gives all that we have in life. Dave Ramsey, I believe, also knows what God knows, is that when you give away the first fruits to the Lord's use, then you are no longer a slave to money. You will then be able to manage your money and not money manage you. God knows our tendency to love the power that money provides for us. It's addictive. It's controlling. And the external requirements of the law, yes, they are done away with in Christ, but not the moral aspect of the need to demonstrate that He is first in our lives. We, we have to understand that the basic tithe is there for the support of the community of faith, and I believe that this remains even while the ceremonial aspects fall away. Christ knows that where you put your treasure, there your heart will follow. Now, in this passage, God is accusing God, his people, of robbing him by fulfilling, failing to do the tithe. But I do believe that this reflects that biblical emphasis on first fruit. And God challenges Christians to demonstrate their love for him by giving to God first. I see it throughout Scripture. I see it in the, in the writing of Paul. Paul says God loves a cheerful giver not a clenched giver. And every Christian is under a new covenant obligation, I believe, to be giving intentionally, whether we nuance if it's a strict 10 or more or less or what, we ought to be giving. This is the point of Scripture. And regularly giving to the support of our local congregation 
is giving and demonstrating that we love God more than we love the power that money provides for us. Now, I think what we see in this, and I need to move a little bit faster at this point in verse 9, is that God is not bound to bless us when we are selfish. Verse 9, we see, um, after asking about, you know, you know, how we have robbed Him, verse 9 says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, the seriousness of transgression here is significant. Their persistence in not giving was actually creating a, a non-blessed environment. They were, there was a curse resting upon them because of their failure to respond to what they were asked to do. And that phrase, you are cursed with a curse, is a really strong way of saying you are greatly cursed. And in the following verses, there is a contrastive promise that is made to reverse the curse that they are under. Their crops had failed, locusts, devourers had come in, disease even may have been evidence of a curse. And I ought to I think it's incur- important for us to like contextualize this also in our day. Inflation is a curse too. I I don't know if you're fully aware if you think through the years but over the last 20 years of remarkable economic growth We've had very flat inflation numbers, 1% or 2%. It's been kind of the norm. But there's also been a very remarkable shift in giving over the last 20 years. Now, the Barna Research Group, not this Barna, but the Barna Research Group has noted this shift, and they've analyzed Christians' giving through the decades. During heavy inflationary years in the 1970s, Christians, on average, gave close to 12% of their income. But after the 80s, when we moved into the, after the 70s, when we moved into the 80s and the 90s and the 10s, giving gradually decreased to about 2 or 3%. That's remarkable, because during that time period, we had much more prosperity. You would think that when we had more to give, people would give. And when there was less to give because you couldn't buy as much and your money's inflating, people were actually giving more. Why would this be the case? And I have heard people say, well, when I get ahead, then I will give. Think about that. I think it's really important. We're in a heavy inflationary cycle again, and I believe it's a curse. If we have annual inflation year over year for the next 10 or 12 years, if you're making $50,000 right now, you're going to need an income of $100,000 just to buy what you did 10 years ago. Inflation is a curse. How is it that a previous generation gave more when they had less buying power? I believe that their faith in God was greater. 
It also means that just because you have more disposable income doesn't necessarily mean that you will give. And I also believe that this, this, we as Christians may also be inheriting what we deserve as people who have lost their first love. It is possible that the generation that did give reaped the reward, but then they slipped and they lost their first love, and now we're in a place where we're receiving the curse for what we deserve. Now, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves, too, there is a positive in this because there's an emphasis upon return. God does bind Himself, in other words, He obligates Himself to bless when we do give. Verse 10 to 11 says, uh, there's these, these very poignant promises. Verse 10 says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, and that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. That's a remarkable promise. I'm almost ready to go prosperity gospel, but I won't. What God does here is He throws His sacred honor on the line. And it's a rare, rare opportunity that believers are encouraged to, quote, test God. There was another time where this invitation to test God was given. It was in, you can read about it in the book of Isaiah, and I've referred to this several times over the years, especially around Christmas. King Ahaz was a faithless king. He didn't truly believe in the God of his fathers. And he was under a lot of pressure from foreign governments that he was going to lose his kingship. And Isaiah came to him and said, if you turn Ahaz and you give your full confidence to the Lord, you can ask for any sign that you wish. You can make it as hard as someone going down to hell and returning. You can make it as high as someone going to heaven and returning. Use your imagination. Test the Lord. He will make it so for you. And Ahaz said, Pah, I won't test. No, that's not for me. He was faithless. The man of God was saying, You could do this. It was, it was okay for him to do it. And you know what Isaiah said to him? Okay, the Lord Himself is going to give you a sign. A virgin will be pregnant. That's the most impossible thing that you could ever think of. Ahaz could have had Christmas if he had have had the foresight to imagine it. Think about what God could do in your life if you were to put Him to the test. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. See, bringing the whole tithe 
will bring a greater blessing. The greater blessing may not always, though, come exactly how you may expect. In this text, he says, look, it may be that this year the devourer doesn't come. Who's preventing him from coming? You know, maybe it's possible that God may intervene so that your car runs longer than you actually anticipated. Oh, I thought I might only get 200,000 miles out of that car, and now I actually get 400,000. Don't tell Pete Gregory that. I do remember the early days of beaters and being a newlywed, and it seemed like all my money was going towards repair, fix or repair daily. I didn't have a Ford, though. I had a, a Chevy. No, it was GM, Pontiac 6000. It was a wretched car. And the temptation was great not to give, but I did, I know that when I started giving like I ought to, that provision and prevention, prevention was there. It did occur. God kept our car running, helped us find a different car. You know, for some to give, it, it might mean like choosing to give and putting off vacation or a dinner out. You might find, though, that God provides for you a little respite from the kids that you didn't actually first think you might have. Trust God first. He will provide the things that you think that you absolutely have to have. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And there's an added aspect to this that that goes even beyond our own selves. When we give to the Lord, verse 12, verse 12 says, then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The language of blessing here alludes to the Abrahamic covenant, where God promised that through the offspring of Abraham, the nations would be blessed. We, through Christ, are part of that blessing to the nations. And I want to take note that through the years, our people have been very generous in giving so that the gospel witness might go out to the nations. We've made long-term commitments over the years to missionaries to which we want to honor, we want to, to keep these commitments. And when you give, your giving is not merely that your own selves will receive blessing, Also, the nations receive blessing through our giving. But I want to take note to something I said earlier, that if giving in America by Christians is low, is it possible that this is a relation in this matter? It need not be. As we give, God continues to bless, increases, and so we are able to do more. We're able to give more so that many others can go into the field and reap and harvest. We can be part of the process of taking joy to the world and allowing others to receive the joy of the gospel. And so, in this text, you're seeing God say, look, you've strayed from me. It's like you've been on that bench seat and you kind of slid over to the other side and it's time to come back come back and and do this through your choices of how you give. 
But there's also the second aspect about returning to the Lord with our time, with our time. Verse 13 to 15 and it, it, there's this, this uh, very short paragraph, and I, can't, I, I really can't take the time to develop it fully this Sunday. I'm gonna, it's going to carry over a little bit to next Sunday. But I want you to, there's a key word in here about service, about serving. In verse 14, it says, and you've said it's vain to serve God. And then in verse uh, 17 and 18, there's another instance in which this word comes up that God is one day going to separate those who truly serve Him and those who don't serve Him. So there's a connection there, and I'm not going to develop this completely this morning, but I think as you heard Jeremy speak this morning about the, the people being involved in the life of the church, the, the beauty of that, of service, is there two people came to me last Sunday, two people came to me last Sunday and said, you know, was last Sunday's sermon, would you call that a fire and brimstone sermon? And uh, I told them, just you wait. I'm not intentionally doing that, but in two weeks, like next Sunday, when we get to chapter four, it's going to be like Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace heated seven times. It's, it's hot. But the people here are saying, well, is, 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 it, is, it, is it useless to serve the Lord? I mean, I mean like, like what, what's the point of it? And I think it's important for us to recognize, too, that there are times in which we may, like those who serve, not be serving for the right reasons. If we don't serve the Lord for the joy of who He is, service will feel meaningless. In fact, we'll burn out. I know that some serve the Lord because they want to feel needed by other people. It gives them a rush to think, you know, this organization would fail if it weren't for me. It's not a good motivation for service. Some people serve the Lord because they think they have the best vision of how things ought to be done. If others would just see it the way we see it, but when they don't, they get deflated and they don't want to serve at all. Some people serve the Lord because they think it will increase their standing in the community. I mean, people will start to say that I'm a good guy. People will think good of my character. If all those are your motivations or any variation on them is one of your motivations, you'll burn out and one day you'll say, it's, there's no point in serving the Lord. That's right. Because you weren't looking from the heart with the right eyes. You were looking for something that would fulfill something you need rather than giving yourself to the Lord. To serve the Lord with your time, which I know is precious, is though one of the greatest blessings that you will reap for eternity. Just being present with the body each week 
is a way of serving that uplifts the joy of a community. God sees it, and it delights in our faithful for participation. As we serve the Lord, we're lifted above the mundane of life into the life of God. It's His love. It's where, where He lives and exists. You know, we, re- we serve someone who was the most generous person in all of history. Jesus spent everything in His life of service, of giving to others. It's why God gives great emphasis upon those who lead well in a congregation. 1 Timothy 3, verse 13, we see this, for those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Serving is a place that is near to the heart of God because it's near to our own salvation. The giving up of ourselves and pouring out. Now, I know that there are seasons where we have to, like our Lord and Savior, step away. We can't, we have to keep things in balance, yes, but if we, we have to keep coming back to serving as followers of Jesus Christ. We don't retire from serving we continue to serve with all of our life. A little girl became really restless as the peace pastor's sermon dragged on. And finally, she leaned over to her mother and whispered, Mommy, if we give him that money now, will he let us go? <laughs> now, giving, though, is a way to show that we love God more. It's what covenanting involves. And so I encourage all of us to examine our own hearts and return to the Lord through covenant giving. Return with our treasures, return with our time. God wants ultimately our heart, and He knows that sometimes we have to give up or give in order to move closer. He made us, He he doesn't need anything from us, so why is He asking? Because He knows us. As surely as our compass needle points north, our hearts will point to where the real treasure is. Our consumer world creates poisonous relationships that will painfully hurt us if we're only looking for what we we can get out of it. We were made to flourish and thrive in giving of ourselves to one another. I don't know if you've ever felt that lack of spark in your relationship with the Lord, then I want to encourage you. Go out and get a vehicle with a front bench seat. Return to the Lord with your treasure and your time. Make it happen. And watch how God will return blessing upon your head. Let's pray.